The Daily Rios for December 7th, 2012. It's a Friday follow-up where I return to a few subjects that I've talked about in previous episodes or cover a topic that I've held off for one reason or another. One of those topics was an idea that was presented by Nick Q in the comment section to episode October uh, 22nd, to the episode from October 22nd. And I talked about it a little bit on the November 2nd episode. He asked to provide a list of some of my favorite actors and maybe a favorite scene that went with that actor in a particular movie and talk about why I like him. I don't know if this actor is necessarily in my top five, but I certainly have to respect the hell out of his work uh, over the over the past couple decades, uh, and that is Jack Nicholson. I'm not saying he's the best actor ever. That's not what this list is going to be. Uh, it's just those actors that speak to me for one reason or another. Maybe it's because of their style or their presence or how they do their craft, uh, characters they have played, etc. So... I'm bringing this up because my girlfriend and I watched Witches of Eastwick yesterday. She hadn't seen it before. And it contains one of my favorite Jack Nicholson scenes. If you know the movie, it came out in the late 80s. It's based on a book by John Updike. It was, it starred Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer uh, as three strong yet bored women going through life, wanting a bit more having to deal with certain men in their life. And when they get together, it always seems like they can do something. They can change the weather or they can make things happen. So over a night of drinks and talking about their uh, ideal man, they happen to conjure up the devil, quote-unquote, to help spice things up in their life, uh, in their lives. And this, obviously, cue Jack Nicholson. And as uh, the movie plays out, mayhem begins. Mayhem takes over the small town that they live in. Eventually, things go too far, and they decide that they need to drive out Jack Nicholson's character. Uh, His name is uh, Daryl Van Horn in the movie. And there's a scene where he's being attacked mystically, and he inadvertently winds up in a church while a sermon is going on. And this is the scene that I want to play. He has just been attacked constantly over and over different ways and he winds up in the church and the attacks seem to stop for a little bit and we get this scene i ask you something you're all church going folk i really want to ask you something do you think god knew what he was doing when he created woman huh no shit i really want to know or do you think it was just another one of his minor mistakes like tidal waves earthquakes floods you think women like that. What's the matter? You don't think God makes mistakes? Of course he does. We all make mistakes. <laughs> of course, we make mistakes, they call it evil. When God makes mistakes, they call it nature. <laughs> So what do you think? Women, a mistake? Or did he do it to us on purpose? Because I really want to know. Because if it's a mistake, maybe we could do something about it. Find a cure. Invent a vaccine. 
up our immune systems. <laughs> Get a little exercise. <laughs> you know, 20 push-ups a day, and you never have to be afflicted with women ever again. See that? I love that. I love the flow of it. I love the performance of it, the energy. Not what he's saying, right? I don't want this to be about me bashing women or anything like that. That's not what I have. It's not about his message. It's about how he delivers a script, how he performs this scene based on everything that has happened up to this point in the movie and what he's trying to get across um, with with the monologue that he has in the middle of this church with all, with all these onlookers. And while he looks a mess and, and he's having all these things that are that are occurring to him, and he delivers this powerful monologue, in, and it's just amazing. I just I think the performance of it is just great. I really want to read the book now just to see how the movie compares. Obviously, the book probably expands on a lot of the questions I have about the movie. Um, it was also actually made into a mov- musical. The Witches of Eastwick was made into a musical that didn't last very long, and I don't know much about it. I think I've heard maybe one or two songs. But Jack's performance, uh, his vocal variation, and if you don't know what that is, it's using the full range of your voice. Um, not only volume, being high, be, uh, you know, talking loud, talking soft, but also pitch, you know, using the highs and the lows of your voice as you deliver a monologue so it's not all monotone. Um, the calmness that he uses, the urgency that he uses, the anger, the emotions, the very different emotions, that's what he does. His delivery is amazing. And it's not only in his voice, it's in his face as well. Those crazy eyebrows, that great smile, the way his eyes uh, always seem to hide some kind of like animal behind them. Uh, I I love that. I love everything about that. I love the way he just chews on those words and spits out that language. I think my biggest complaint with some actors, some that have even won Oscars, (coughs) Natalie Portman... (coughs) is that their face is just so lacking and dull on screen. They could be saying some of the most um, wonderful language and, and, and reading some of the best script, but their their face and their eyes are just dead. It's that bullshit movie acting technique that, that uh, some people subscribe to where they say less is more, always be subtle. And I, I think, screw that. Get on the screen and choose some scenery if it calls for it, right? Subtlety only gets you so far... And, I, and there are certainly movies that call for that, but expression, that's what gets me, that's what that scene is about with Jack Nicholson. Uh, and here's another. Here's an example of a mixture of the two. If you've ever seen um, Shakespeare in Love, again, I'm not trying to hit the greatest movies ever. Sometimes some of the best scenes, some of the best actors come out of the movies that are, you know, just maybe not so great. But there's a scene near the end, where uh, Judy Dench is the Queen of England, and she has just been in the audience while the, the play Romeo and, and Juliet has been going on. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm just going to play uh, the, the part that I'm talking about here. So let me just play that real quick. The Queen of England does not attend exhibitions of public lewdness, so something is out of joint. Come here, Master Kent. Let me look at you. Yes, the illusion is remarkable. And your error, Mr. Tilney, is easily forgiven. But I know something of a woman in a man's profession. 
Yes, by God, I do know about that. The way she delivers that line, she's she is being very calm and, and quiet with her body language, but there is an intensity and in her eyes and her facial expression. It may seem like it's subtle, but there is an energy and a fury and a fire behind those eyes and that face that could probably kill you. I mean, it is amazing. I love that. So there's a good example of the mixture of being subtle in a movie and also being very expressive. But to me, uh, the, the Jack, Nicholson, Jack Nicholson scene, I love that. I, I love those kind of moments, that raw energy that can come out through a movie. And there's a lot more of those kind of scenes, especially where Jack Nicholson is concerned. In this movie, in other movies, there's a great... The great scene he has with, um, in Carnal Knowledge with, uh, what the heck's her name? Anne Margaret, where she's flipping out that she can't sleep and she wants a job and he just goes bonkers on her. I first heard that scene, actually, they use it a lot on, on Stern back in the day, on the Howard Stern show they used it. Um, because he just, he completely flips out on Anne Margaret. You have to look it up, Carnal Knowledge with uh, Jack Nicholson and Anne Margaret. Uh, another fantastic scene. So there you go. There's an actor. There's a scene I really like from that actor. Uh, as I said, I won't, I won't do a top five. I'll, I'll play this out for a while. I'll keep coming back to this topic because it's kind of fun. Hi, my name is Ben Lucius. In 1998, I created the pulp adventure hero, The Black Coat. It's kind of a cross between James Bond and Batman, but it's set during the American Revolution, uh, 1775 in New York City, right before the war. Uh, so he's battling some pirates, uh, red coats, and of course, some monsters. Artist Francesco Francavilla joined me as co-creator, and writer and friend Adam Kogan uh, came on board to help write the books. We first started publishing The Black Coat in uh, 2005, 2006, and uh, since then we've been able to put out um, a number of series. We've had two uh, full-length series come out and a, and a couple of one-shots. and. Being able to do this book and work with the uh, amazing people that I've worked with has really been a dream come true. And after each issue, after each series, I get asked the same question, when is the next one coming out? So when is the next series coming out? Well, I think you can guess that's why we're here. The Kickstarter community is uh, learning a lot about the comic book industry and independent comics in particular, and, uh, coming to realize that it's, it's expensive to put out a book. Um, we have a story. Cots, who drew the last series, is on board for another installment. Ape Entertainment has uh, already agreed to publish uh, whatever we produce. And so we're coming to you, our fans, fans of independent comics, uh, to help us produce a 66-page graphic novel that tells the further adventures of America's first super spy. This new book is that new series, uh, full of stories that we've been waiting to tell and fans have been waiting to read. And, uh, you can make it happen. So who saw the Star Trek trailer? Yep. I know I said I wasn't going to watch trailers, but I just had to look. But that's it. I'm try I'm not going to watch anymore, and I'm not going to read anymore. I don't care if the movie doesn't make sense to some people. I don't care if it's not what they think Star Trek should be. I love it. It's a new universe. It's a new... <laughs> it's a new universe. It's a new 52 Star Trek uh, anything goes, and it looks awesome. I love the scene where the people are falling through the ship, 
as if to say that the gravitational stuff of the ship has gone kind of bonkers, and maybe it's on its side, so they're all sort of like falling down a hallway. Ah, it looks awesome. I love the villain. It seems like it's some kind of Gary Mitchell con mashup. Uh, you know, I don't know. Again, anything goes in this universe. I don't know where they're pulling their stories from. It seems like they can keep some of the old stuff. They can veer off in new directions. And it did make me think, you know, Leonard Nimoy as uh, the alternate universe Spock um, did play a part in the first movie. So what if there was one screenshot of... um, I I assume it's uh, Zachary Quinto's hand as Spock and another hand is sort of touching his and maybe there's some kind of glass in between very reminiscent of the end of um, Wrath of Khan where in in that movie um, Spock dies right because he saves a ship and he's I don't know infected with radiation and Kirk puts his hand to the glass because Spock has made uh, the Vulcan symbol and says something about I will always be your friend or whatever it is I don't know it by heart so this scene in the trailer kind of looked that, looked like that, and it made me wonder, huh, I wonder if they're going to recreate that scene for the new universe. But this time, maybe it's flipped. Maybe maybe it's uh, the Leonard, Leonard Nimoy Spock. Maybe, okay, you go different ways. Maybe he is saving the ship again, and the uh, Zachary Quinto Spock those are uh, is trying to tell him no, and puts his hand up, and maybe it's the two Spocks, right? Um, maybe something happens where the, the the Spock that we know, the Leonard Nimoy Spock, uh, takes his place because he knows some. maybe the same scene is happening again, and he, and he kind of remembers it and says, I have to go in there and save him, or I don't know. I don't know what. There's probably multiple variations of that scene. We don't know whose hands they belong to, but... Uh, maybe Leonard Nimoy dies so the Zachary Quinto Spock can live on forever. I sort of hope I'm wrong so I didn't ruin the story for anybody or myself, but I don't know. Anyway, great trailer, Star Trek Into Darkness. Cannot wait till May. God, all the way till May. Next year, great movies coming out next year. Star Trek, Man of Steel, Iron Man 3. I don't know if they're going to be great movies, but they're movies that I'm looking forward to. World War Z, Kick-Ass 2, Wolverine, uh, 300 Rise of the Empire, G.I. Joe Retaliation, that's right, I said it, uh, A Good Day to Die Hard, Hangover Part 3, Sin City, A Dame to Kill for, Thor 2, Hunger Games 2, Hobbit 2, an amazing year, can't wait for 2013. Welcome to the world of Pariah, Missouri. The year is 1857, four years before the American Civil War. Considered a boomtown along the Missouri River, Pariah grew at an uncontrollable rate, with river commerce and the constant flow of people and money. Boomtowns were known for mob rule, vigilante justice, inflated prices, and squalor. Pariah, what is now known as St. Joseph, Missouri, was the furthest point west about three days' ride north of Kansas City, and it had quickly become a haven for the unscrupulous and mysterious. We follow Hiram Buchanan, an agent for the Pinkertons, as he attempts to uncover the local crime syndicate. He builds a ragtag team to ferret out evil. Nellie, a crafty courtesan. Jean Lafitte, a traveling musician from New Orleans. And the Mexican Comanche bounty hunter trapper, Toro. 
but things aren't as they seem in Pariah. There's something dark and sinister here. Everyone has a secret. This town becomes a nexus for the supernatural. You can be a part of the magic of Pariah. Through Kickstarter, we are producing Acts 1 and 2 together in a double-sized 52-page issue. Your donations will go directly to paying for the production and printing costs. After those costs are covered, all monies will go to Acts 3 and 4, with the collection of all four acts in the spring of 2013. With your pledge donations, along with the comic book, from limited edition poker chips and shot glasses to t-shirts and prints, we are offering something special for everyone that donates to this project. Everyone here at BS Studios thanks you for your support. It means a lot to us to be able to realize our dreams. Stay tuned to our page. We will be adding more updates, stretch goals, and videos. Finally, uh, I got some feedback, or actually a question on Tumblr from Brandon Christopher. What's up, Brandon? Uh, and I've been holding on to this for a while. I've been trying to throw it into like a Feedback Friday, and I just didn't get around to it. So I'm going to dump it here because it also connects to something else I talked about before. Uh, Brandon asks, if you could have creative control over any one comic book character, who would it be? Creative control. Wow. First off, as I've stated before, it is not my intention, it has never been my intention to get into the comic book game through podcasting. I tend to cringe a bit when I see podcasters or bloggers um, who get a decent amount of exposure through their podcasting, whether it's earned or not, and then they sort of parlay that into uh, a writing gig or a comic book gig, um, as if that was the intention all along, right? They, 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 they wanted to get into comics by way of critiquing them. I don't know. There's just something about that that kind of doesn't sit right with me. I, I always feel like if you're going to do that, then you better write Watchmen-level comics because we have your own words to throw back at you if it sucks. Now, granted, some bloggers, podcasters didn't have that intention and sort of stumbled along it and were given an opportunity, sure, you know, and they, and they didn't want to turn it down. Fair enough. I totally get that. You know, I think of Gail Simone, who uh, used to write columns for CBR way before, or, yeah, way before she ever became a writer, you know. That, so some some of these things are different, but do I really need to read comics by, you know, Rich Johnson or Grace Randolph or Josh Flanagan? No, I don't, no, not at all. Having said all that, to answer Brandon's question, hypothetically, the first thing I wouldn't do if I was given creative control over any comic book character, I wouldn't go after the character that is obvious or that I have too much attraction for. So, no, I wouldn't want to handle Nightwing. I wouldn't want to handle Legion of Superheroes. There's just too much baggage there. I would play around too much in, in what I loved and what I knew, um, and that's too obvious and um, boring, right? I probably would go for a totally unknown. Someone that I, a character that I have very little experience with, or that could use a little love, a character or concept that you could do something with. Now, the way this connects to a previous conversation is, uh, I think I was talking about my own universe of characters that I used to create as a kid and in my teen years and college years, and I think I mentioned that I did actually send uh, some pitches to DC universe to DC at that time. And that kind of 
relates to the character or concept that I would want creative control over. And for me, I think it's DC's uh, near future. If we live in the 21st century and the Legion takes place in the 31st century, somewhere along like the 22nd or 23rd century, I think it's largely untapped in the DC universe. Think of DC's great 50s space adventure characters, Mystery in Space and Strange Adventures and all the characters that sort of popped up in those comics and how those characters could help to explore the frontier of DC's great space unknown, which I think is awesome. I, d I wouldn't even want to go too far into like Booster Gold's time, which I think is like the 25th century. Um, this would be before Booster Gold, before Reverse Flash. This would be, you know where this is all coming from? It's the raw Wild West energy type of type of feeling that I got from the three-issue Howard Chaikin, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Twilight uh, series from the late 80s, where they did exactly this. They took all the characters, all of DC's space characters, and made a story work around them all. Now, that was just for a miniseries. I'm talking expanded even more into an ongoing series. So, uh, as much as I loved what they did, this would be something very different. Um, but I love the cosmic. I love the cosmic characters of both Marvel and DC. So I think that's where I would want to go. As I said, DC toyed around a little bit with it, but not necessarily knowingly, right? It's not like it's necessarily was always in continuity. Um, think about Jack Kirby's Commandy, which takes place during the Great Disaster Era uh, and everything that came after. And then there's Hex, the series that starred Jonah Hex in the near future, this would be something different. Obviously, those um, were around post-crisis, pre-crisis, and a little bit post-crisis, but then they were altered. Uh, I'm talking something new. Uh, I guess it would have to be, you know, based on the New 52 kind of um, concept or continuity. It would be DC's version of Saga. That's probably where I would want to go. Now, the reason I bring this up is because that is something, as I said, that I, I once pitched to DC Comics back in um, 2001, actually. I actually dug through some of my comic book stuff, and I found it. I found a printout of uh, the pitch that I had once sent. Uh, let's see, if this was early 2001, I was uh, 28? Yeah, I was 28 at the time. And the character that I spun it around was Captain Comet, because at that time he was, cel or maybe in the next year, he was going to celebrate his 50th year anniversary. So I called it Captain Comet, Man of Destiny, a 50th year anniversary tale. Man of Destiny was his, um, you know, the catchphrase for the character, very reminiscent of Man of Steel, right? Uh, it's called the Man of Destiny. The reason I chose Captain Comet is because I was a big fan of the Legion series with the periods, right? Legion 89, Legion 90, and I liked everything that they did with the character, uh, and they brought the character into that book because they originally wanted Adam Strange, but they couldn't use him because at that time, Mark Wade had just written the prestige miniseries called Fall of Adam Strange. And they were tweaking him a little bit. Um, again, this was post-Dark Knight Returns where a lot of characters were, were getting uh, new leases on life. Um, you know, think of Green Hour Longbow Hunters, 
Think of Hawk World with Hawkman. Think of Howard Chaykin's uh, Black Hawk with uh, Black Hawk Blood and Iron. And Mark Wade was doing this with Adam Strange with the fall of Adam Strange. So that meant they couldn't use the character in Legion, so instead they swapped it out another DC cosmic hero, and they brought in Captain Comet. So I, I had a, a liking for that character. I'm actually going to read you the pitch. Now, you're going to have to bear with me here, because there's a lot in this that is based on what was going on at DC at the time. So there might be some things that most people listening, maybe you don't quite remember these stories or know where they're coming from. So I'll read the pitch, and I'll try to explain it a little bit here. So it's Captain Comet, Man of Destiny, a 50th year anniversary tale proposal. And the blurb is, what happens when even the man of destiny loses his way? What do Captain Comet, Hector Hammond, Vandal Savage, the Immortal Man, the inhabitants of Gorilla City, Red Star, and Metamorpho all have in common? That's right, they all receive their powers from that origin story chestnut, the Mysterious Comet. In this new ongoing series, we learn the true origins of those mysterious comets, as well as their connection with the source wall on the edge of the Promethean galaxy, the source wall being uh, a fourth world Jack Kirby concept that beyond the source wall, you couldn't venture, right? There was something beyond there that you just couldn't venture to. Um, and it was always drawn, you know, out in, floating out in space, just gigantic, massive wall made up of uh, petrified bodies that had tried to penetrate the source wall. And uh, uh, they're, you know, larger-than-life characters. They were really, you know, they were shown blown up. And it was just a cool, it's a cool visual, it's a cool idea. So that's what the source wall was. That's what I was referencing here. All right, back to the, to the pitch. With Captain Comet slash Adam Blake as the series' focus, we learn that the comet that gave him powers comes from millennia in the past and was the scheme of a controller to empower mortals for defense against the oncoming threat and the future threat of the Anti-Monitor. See, I love Crisis, so I had to throw all that in. Um, Alright, uh, the controller was killed before he could explain his intentions to any of the empowered beings, but the Source Wall fragment was shattered and sent through time and space, sometimes changing, sometimes remaining pure, yet all the characters empowered by the fragments of the comet were left unguided, unaware, and without a destiny. So there, that sort of ties it all in. Uh, continuing here, this that was the first paragraph. Here's the second one. In Captain Comet, Man of Destiny, we follow Blake throughout DC space as he learns of the true origins of the comet that blessed him at his birth. His new destiny deals with the mission to find other empowered characters, just as he was, before they reach a point in their evolution that sets them beyond human understanding, a change that will create a dangerous new threat to the entire universe. Captain Comet's travels reunite him with Legion team him up with the Omega Man in the Vagan star system, and make him a featured player during the growing pains of Adam Strange's League of Planets from Starman. So Starman was going on at this time, and James Robinson wrote this storyline where Jack Knight was out in space, and uh, the resolution of it, um, Adam Strange had mentioned that uh, perhaps he would try to unite some planets into a League of Planets, and it was meant to be the precursor to what happens in the Legion of Superheroes timeline, where planets are united and, and the governing body is called the United Planet. So I was treating uh, the League of Planets as sort of like an early example of that. 
All right, back to the pitch. Uh, bringing Blake back to his roots, other characters will appear who began their careers in the Silver Age Strange Adventures title. The series will attempt to create the seeds for DC's future as we meet the Horatio family, which is a connection to Tommy Tomorrow, Auto Man, gotta go look up your who's who if you want to know who that is, and the Planet Tears. And wait until you see the revised Vartox from the pre-crisis Superman mythos and the new galaxy-wide threat from the Quard universe. Quard being the antimatter universe that uh, frequently pops up in Green Lantern. And then I close it out by saying, it is a story of a man fighting to regain purpose, understanding, and his destiny. So there you go, uh, a pitch for my Captain Comet series, stuffed full of tons of DC cosmic goodness, uh, overly stuffed. You know, there's just, it's too big, right? The pitch is just gigantic. And I mean, I, at that time, could certainly make sense of it all because I was, I'm such a DC head and, and I love the cosmic stuff. But, uh, you know, for readers, that's just way too much. Uh, anyway, I also wrote an issue one plot line, just one page, and I'll read that as well. So uh, the prologue here says, At the source wall on the edge of the Promethean galaxy, we see a ship burn off a large chunk of the wall. As it starts to fly away, it is met by an unknown assailant, probably someone from Quard, who destroys the ship, even though the pilot is unseen. The fragment is shattered and shown to be cast throughout time and space in the DC Universe. It travels to the Dawn of Man, which is Immortal Man and Vandal Savage's timeline. It travels to 1100 BC, Egypt, which would factor into the origin of Metamorpho. It travels to North America, roughly the 19th century, which ties into Super Chief. It ties to an unknown time in Africa, which is where Gorilla City is. It, uh, another fragment goes to 1908, Siberia, which would factor into Red Star's origin of the Teen Titans. Another fragment goes to 1961 in Coast City, which factors into the origin of Hector Hammond. Uh, another fragment goes to the year 2000 in Deep Space, which would create the new post-crisis Vartox. And also 2003... Uh, in Metropolis. Now, that would be the future, right? Because this series probably, well, I don't know, maybe maybe had it been picked up, maybe it would have come out in 2003. Um, but uh, another fragment fragment goes to 2003 Metropolis, which would create the new Lady Lunar. Again, another character from um, Who's Who. Basically, what I did is I think I just went through, like, DC's Who's Who and got all the characters that uh, got their powers from some kind of strange, mysterious comet and threw them all together to make sense of them. The last fragment we see goes to 1931, and it passes over a home in the Midwest, and on the mailbox we see the last name of Blake, which would be Adam Blake's family. So a couple things here with this uh, prologue. As I said, you couldn't pierce the source wall, but I thought, well, if you couldn't pierce it, could you take a fragment from it, right? I don't, I don't know if that's ever really been explored in the DC Universe of actually taking a fragment of the source wall, probably taking a bit of the body of someone um, and using that as uh, a method of power or energy. And this idea of bringing together all these comet-empowered characters probably comes from the way Mark Wade used all of the speedsters during his Flash run and created the Flash family. Not only was it Wally West, 
but it was Jay Garrick, and then it was the female Johnny Quick, and then Impulse, and then he brought in Max Mer- Mercury, and then the Golden Age Johnny Quick, so he sort of created a Flash family, and that kind of reverberated in other DC books at the time. Green Lantern would start pulling in certain characters that all made sense together, and um, obviously the Batman books did that, and I think that's probably what I was playing with, uh, with that idea, with uh, trying to connect all these characters. All right, so that's the prologue. Then uh, we cut to Tacron Galtos, which is a prison planet in the Legion of Superheroes uh, era, but has been shown to exist in modern-day DC comics as well, prior to Flashpoint. And the, the paragraph here reads, We then see the warden of Tacron Galtos talking to someone as they approach the area where a prisoner riot is occurring. The warden is stating that the riot started because the League of Planets, founded in Starman by Adam Strange, decided to annex the prison into its charter. This allowed many member worlds to take back some of the prisoners held there that they felt were wrongly accused. The other prisoners found this to be unfair and began to riot. Inside the riot area, we finally see the mysterious figure that the warden is talking to is Captain Comet, in a new, less superhero-y costume. We also see the prisoners for the first time, and they include members of Queen Bee's Hive, Queen Bee from Grant Morrison's JLA, the space version, uh, some vegan terrorists, and other space villains. As he approaches the center of the mess, telekinetically shoving the others aside, he says just a few words to halt everyone, stop this now, back all of you. It is unclear if he has used his mental powers or if the mere power of suggestion from this Superman of space has caused everyone to halt. So I was trying to build up this idea that Captain Comet had been around for enough time along the DC Universe, along the spaceways of the DC Universe, that he has a reputation that precedes him uh, much in the same way that Superman has on Earth, Captain Comet would have out in space in certain systems, that he is the Superman of space and commands respect because he is that powerful mentally or whatever. Just trying to give it a little bit more weight, This try to give this character more weight, try to really give an idea if he's called the man of destiny, there's got to be some weight to that, right? All right, then we cut to the Cometeer, which is uh, Captain Comet's ship. Back on the vessel, Captain Comet receives a message from Legion requesting that he return to their headquarters for unknown reasons. Blake tries to explain that he is on his way to Earth, but he is persuaded to return to Legion HQ instead. His mind drifts as he travels, and we learn that Professor Emery Zakro, the scientist that helped Captain Comet in his younger days, has passed away from overexposure to the radiation of the comet that empowered Blake, but to Blake himself, and that the professor has finally died, after years of a prolonged life. Captain Comet uh, received this video days earlier before the prison riot uh, through a signal sent from Earth that was sent in the event of the death of the professor. Blake's mind drifts more as he recalls his origin from birth, growing up, meeting the professor, fighting in the Golden Age battle against Dynaman in Washington, D.C., stopping the aliens that made him a media sensation in the Silver Age, battling the original Secret Society of Supervillains, and finally leaving Earth for space, eventually be possessed by a parasite that lived in him during Legion, his capture uh, by Dagon Ra, 
joining Legion, meeting meeting Mary Jane, and maybe some new things along the way between Legion and this new series. So this that's a way to just kind of incorporate the origin into the concept. And I always liked, I love, I still do love, James Robinson's four-issue Golden Age series, which uh, originally wasn't intended to be an Elseworlds concept, an alternate universe concept, but it had since been wrapped up into that. And it was an idea that, uh, it was basically, you could kind of consider it the last Golden Age story, where James Robinson threw in all the characters of the JSA and the All-Star Squadron and Freedom Fighters and told this brilliant story. And at the end of it, as they battle the character Dynaman, one uh, individual comes onto the scene, a new superhero. Uh, He doesn't do much good, but he becomes the face of this battle, and he becomes the face of the new era of superheroes. Instead of the Golden Age, they become the Silver Age, and it was Captain Comet in that story. So I decided to include some of that continuity in this, even though DC didn't quite want to incorporate that story into their continuity. James Robinson certainly did in Starman. He made some very light allusions to it, uh, but I would have you know, tried to put it in there because I think it's important to, to Captain Comet. Alright, then there's an interlude on a different planet. The League of Planets convene for the first time. As their honor guard, we see the team Vanguard from the New Teen Titans Baxter Annual number 1, Possibly even Jarrus Minion, who was a, a New Titans member for a little bit there. Uh, their discussion is the inclusion of new planets, the threat of the Empire that is uh, going up against Legion in their own book, and the aid needed for those worlds still ravaged by the Mageddon weapon from JLA. And then there's an alternate interlude featuring Quard, uh, but no real explanation there. And then, finally, uh, at Legion HQ, Blake asks where Mara Jane is and is told that she is on a mission to the Vagan Star System. But he was called to the headquarters because there's a controller who asked for him and who will finally tell him the truth about his origins. Now, if you don't know who, what a controller is, the controllers are an alien race that spun off from the same race that created the Guardians of the Universe. And... The controllers were more interested in developing sort of weapons to defeat evil, yet the way they go about it makes them seem evil as well. So keeping with that concept, the idea was for a controller to learn about the existence of the Anti-Monitor in Quard years before the crisis happened, maybe decades, maybe millennia, obviously, and he wanted to find a way to defeat the Anti-Monitor before he could, you know, do what he was going to do in the crisis of uh, of Infinite Earth. So he went after the source wall, tried to gain power from it, and that controller, um, I'm not sure if that controller is dead. I don't think it's the same controller that Blake meets. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking back then. (laughs) But that's the way the controller was going to fight the anti-monitor. I don't think I ever meant to sort of tie this into the crisis. That was just the idea behind why the controller would go to the source wall, and then that's it. I didn't want to dabble too much in in the concept of fourth world at that time because everybody was kind of messing around with Jack Kirby's fourth world. It was just a starting point for this uh, story. So there you go. That was the pitch. That was the first issue uh, breakdown. And I received a lovely form letter uh, with Mike Carlin's signature on it that says uh, that they didn't take unsolicited material and that if I was wanted to submit um, a request 
asking if they were looking for pitches, I could do that, but then I was to probably send previously published material along with it so that they wouldn't receive anything new so they that they could so they couldn't be accused of stealing ideas. Yeah, I certainly get that. But uh, so I have uh, my very own DC Comics reject letter. That's awesome. So that's the pitch. And that's a lot. There's a lot of information in that. You'd have to be a hardcore DC fan to understand it all. But the idea was not to be like that. It was just sort of kind of like what James Robinson did with Starman, where he took a lot of the Golden Age material and he threw it into that series. And you didn't have to be up on it all. He explained it along the way. He made it make sense. And he treated it as fertile ground for storytelling, not something that you should be afraid of to delve into. And obviously because of Starman, we would eventually get the JSA series, so, uh, you know, it, it did its work. I think I like the cosmic stuff because there's so much untapped there. And look at what Marvel did from Annihilation on up to, uh, you know, what they're going to do now with Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, it's just it's really great that they're able to steer all that and get people excited in those characters. To go back to Brandon's question, I would want to totally go into a new millennia so that I didn't have to deal with uh, DC's heroes, um, and I would just re- try to reshape that and think about think about space ex- exploration and how awesome that would be, and sort of lay the groundwork for DC's true future in the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, I think there's just an untapped gold mine there. But I just wanted to share one of the pitches that I sent to DC because I thought that wrapped in nicely with this conversation and with this topic that Brandon brought up. And it also fits into the overall theme of the episode, a Friday follow-up uh, to, to you know make sure I cover my bases with things that I may have mentioned in the past. And just as a tease, someday I'll read the other pitch that I sent in that I swear they 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 turned into an actual uh, another Elseworlds series. Uh, but we'll talk about that. We'll save that for another day. All right, uh, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this week. It was a lot of comics talk. But uh, there you go. That happens sometimes. Send me some feedback, peter at com. Send me a voicemail. Send me an email. Put a comment up on the website, thedailyreels.com. Subscribe through iTunes if you haven't already. Have a great weekend, and I will see you next week. <laughs>